Welcome to The Wrap Up, a weekly podcast that gives you an insider's look at the top stories in Hollywood. I'm your host, Sharon Waxman, the founder and editor-in-chief of The Wrap. Joining me is my co-host, Daniel Goldblatt, assistant managing editor. Hey, Daniel. Sharon, how excited are you to talk to Kendrick Sampson this week? I mean, this entire podcast this week is basically the culture war edition, and I'm excited to have Kendrick. I'm excited to talk about LGBTQ issues. I'm excited to talk about anti-Semitism. I'm excited to talk about cancel culture. It's like we got the whole, we got a poo-poo platter here this week. You coming up. are excited to talk to Kendrick. <laughs> Don't lie. Okay, that's Don't true. Lie. All right. Yes. You mentioned Glad this week. They released their Studio Responsibility Index, which grades the quantity, quality, and diversity of LGBTQ characters in films released by the seven major motion picture studios. This year's study provided some mixed results. Megan Townsend, Glad's Director of Entertainment Research and Analysis, will join us to discuss. Then my interview with Insecure star and prominent Black Lives Matter activist Kendrick Sampson. We discussed his work in the build power movement that he began and his leading role in the protests in Los Angeles. But first, Sharon, let's get to some headlines. You know, it was a very interesting week for conservative writers at, we'll call them left-leaning institutions. Definitely. Andrew Sullivan parted ways with New York Magazine in a move his editor-in-chief called, quote, mutual. Sullivan didn't go into great detail about what led to the departure, but he did have some pretty nice words for his editors on the way out the door. Barry Weiss, on the other hand, went scorched earth on the New York Times in announcing her resignation. And we know this because she posted her entire resignation letter on her own website for the world to read. It said in part, quote, a new consensus has emerged in the press, but perhaps especially at this paper, that truth isn't a process of collective discovery, but an orthodoxy already known to an enlightened few whose job is to inform everyone else. She also said that she was the subject of what she called, quote, constant bullying by her own colleagues at the Times. And all of this, of course, follows the week where, you know, the topic of cancel culture was hotly debated by, you know, people from all sides, yourself included. Mm -hmm. Sharon, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that this uh, trend this week was a little disturbing to you. Uh, Yeah, it is disturbing. Um, Yes, I did write a piece about cancel culture, something that we've been talking about on the show. And we'll just call that the practice of making certain people and points of view, uh, pushing them outside the acceptable um, arena of discourse because they don't align with your own views. This is not a good trend in our society. And so what I wrote about this week after having really observed this and thinking about it um, for, for weeks on end, as we've been watching this national reckoning over racism, which is an important and salutary thing to be happening at the same time, this um, in the margins of that, people being um, mocked online, being trolled, and in some uh, in, in some and not not a, not a small number of cases, people being drummed out of their jobs because of things that they said because a certain as as Barry Weiss said, orthodoxy is prevailing and and is therefore driving decisions. One of the other things she said in her letter that I thought was rang true. It said is it says something like Twitter is not on the masthead of the New York Times, but Twitter has a job, <laughs> has a lot of power at the New York Times. And so, you know, it is very hard to get your arms around this. We we talked about this last week on the pod when we were talking about this group of 150 intellectuals who signed a letter 
basically standing up for free expression in which that and and that led to a counter response from another 150 less prominent less well-known um, writers journalists authors many of them of color many of them the lgbtq community saying that that, that original letter championing free expression missed the point and that really what we need to be talking about is why certain people, mostly white, mostly male, have had the power of these platforms forever and why they don't want to share that, that, that space. So what I wrote a piece about was to try to get my head around why do some people feel like this is a binary issue? Why is it that we have to pick one side and not the other when we're talking about a, a debate of ideas? To me, the entire bedrock of a democracy the benefits that came from the age of the Enlightenment three and 400 years ago was about a willingness to debate ideas and have the best ideas win. When we decide, as Barry Weiss feels, that ideas cannot live in a marketplace of ideas, that they become personal attacks uh, instead, then society as a whole is the loser. So I don't even know Barry Weiss's views all that well to defend them or not defend them, but uh, it seems to me increasingly that there's some uh, movement in this sort of new age and this new age of journalism where it's okay to say, yeah, no, your ideas are offending me and therefore I shouldn't hear them anymore. I shouldn't have to hear them anymore. It's an unenviable, unenviable. Oh, I can't even unenviable. Let me help you. Yes, thank you. Uh, position to be in, you know, when you're sort of the lone representative of one side. It's hard, right? It's like, hard. you know, I have uh, a friend or two that have been contributors at, you know, like Fox News, even though they're liberal. You know, so there's people who hold these positions on both sides, and I think they're very important positions because if you just want to read, watch, and listen to people who agree with you. I don't think you're going to grow. I don't think you're going to learn anything. You're just going to stay in your own little bubble. And your ideas don't get better unless they're challenged, unless exactly. they have to stand up and 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 withstand uh, and withstand logical challenges. That was what I found. The letter in the objective, which was the counter argument to the to the letter that was in Harper's, the original letter um, arguing against cancel culture, I. I read that really carefully. It was very long. It was way longer than the letter that was <laughs> in the original Harper's thing. And it felt like the arguments were frankly weak. I was looking for someone explained to me why this is a way, why this makes sense, why we're throwing out basically what we've figured out and developed over the past 400 years of enlightenment uh, learning and culture that and, and that led to the establishment of democracy. Um, let's not talk about the Greeks. Okay, they definitely established democracy, but the revival of democracy, I guess, in modern times. And that, and, and the best answer I get is, oh, cancel culture doesn't exist. Only consequences exist. So if you're called out for something that I decide is a racist or anti-Semitic or anti-LGBTQ comment. Um, you then have to go away because that's what I've decided. You've hurt my feelings. I'm just arguing, make the argument rather than attack the person. The idea that Barry Weiss, is it Barry or Barry? I guess it's I Barry. It's Barry. Okay. Yeah. Who is a very, very good writer. And 
um, who said in her letter that she was invited to, to join the New York Times op-ed page in the wake of the 2016 election of Donald Trump, in which the New York Times editorial board took a look at itself in the mirror and said, how did we not see this coming? We need to diversify the, the spectrum of opinions on our pages and listen. So she was invited to be part of that. For her to say that she then had to, and I don't know if it's true or not, but this is what she's saying, on the internal Slack channels of news of the, of the New York Times have to be mocked and called names by her colleagues and that, her, and that the management of the New York Times tolerated that. I found that extremely shocking. I would like to think that I would never tolerate that if somebody um, would insult somebody who either ever worked here at The Wrap or currently works here at The Wrap, I'd say the same thing. Make your argument. Make Disagree all you want, but don't attack the person. So she clearly feels driven out. I think there's some talk as to whether there's if this is not coincidental that Andrew Sullivan, uh, who is, by the way, like notoriously anti-Trump, um, ex, you know, a, a sort of very independent thinking conservative, as is Barry Weiss, by the way. And I don't know if there's a couple of other people who are who have sort of a, a, a become available out there, but that they might start start their own publication, which would be interesting. Yeah, I just think you know we can't uh, underestimate the importance of counter opinions, particularly at the from the places where we expect a certain type of voice. I think it's very important to get yourself out of your own bubble, to to let yourself take in other ideas. And, you know, to your point, instead of lashing out, if you don't agree, just understanding at least what's out there. You know what I mean? Get an idea of what the quote unquote other side is thinking. I, I will say this. This reflects very poorly on The New York Times coming on the heels of James Bennett, the op-ed page editor, having to resign over the fact that he allowed this op-ed by Tom Cotton, the Republican senator, to appear in which Tom Cotton talked about, you know, bring, bring out the military to, to put down all of these looters and violent people in the streets. And um, a large number of writers, many of them African-American, signed, signed uh, I, think, I think it was like 800 of them signed this um, memo to management of the paper saying that this op-ed made them feel unsafe. Um, uh, uh, okay, understood that, that that was something that caused a lot of upset at the paper, um, but um, the, the, the optics for, for the Times having decided that James Bennett can no longer serve the position of being the, the, the arbiter of a, a, an array of opinions and responsibly, and then making somebody who is an, a more of a loner in that in, in that general political view in that building feel feel like they can't continue that, and especially her maintaining that she was actually attacked by her colleagues, ver, you know, verbally in a public forum. I consider Slack to be a public forum, and I have not heard the paper respond to that. They have not denied it. They have, they will not comment. We've asked them a bunch of times. Anyway, we'll we'll continue to watch uh, where where this debate continues to go. I think it matters a great deal. And but on that same, uh, on a related subject, because uh, we were talking about bias and racism, um, this week we had Viacom CBS terminate its relationship with Nick Cannon in the wake of some anti-Semitic comments he made on his podcast. 
On a June 30th episode, uh, Cannon said that black people are, quote, the true Hebrews. And he trotted out some very tired conspiracy theories involving the Rothschild family and other sort of, you know, widely discredited anti-Semitic tropes. So he initially apologized, but then he also demanded an apology from Viacom and then also full ownership of the show Wild and Out, which he referred to as a billion dollar brand. Then I guess he thought better of all of this because he had a bunch of other jobs that were on the line. So he issued a second apology that was much more thought thought through, let's say, much more sincere. And at, within, within minutes, literally, Fox announced that they were going to stick with him as the host of The Masked Singer, which is one of their very most popular shows. So, Daniel, I'm not sure how you feel about this. So now is a good time for me to tell you that I'm leaving the wrap. And I'm, start, I'm starting, I'm, fi I'm finally going to start my own crisis PR firm, and it's called Always Apologize. <laughs> Always Apologize. Okay. It works every single time. There's no reason to get combative. There's no reason to- We shouldn't have given that away because you could have charged like, you know, six-figure fees. Apparently, I, it, you still need it because apparently no one really listens. It took a day or two for someone to get through to Nick Cannon and just tell him, look, you have a lot riding. Not only is he the host of The Mass Thing, which is one of the biggest shows on TV, he's supposed to have a syndicated talk show premiering Coming in, up, in September. That's right. mm -hmm. You know, he has a lot on the line here. So, you know, Viacom pulled the plug. And, and, how, is, and, how is anti-Semitism a win for you in, in a mass communications medium? I don't know. I don't, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a believer in second chances. I'm definitely, the apologies work because we're all guilty of something at some point. He deserves the opportunity to, you know, sort of prove that he can grow, that he can learn. And if you're Fox, you know, you have this, this immensely popular show. I don't know how, you know, important Nick Cannon really is to that success, but why mess with it? I'm sure someone there said, look, buddy. We need you to apologize to keep Maybe you in, his in agent. this. Who knows? Maybe his, who knows? But who knows? I'm sure Fox was very relieved that he finally came to his senses and just owned up to it as much as he could. Um, and hopefully, you know, he sticks with what he said because, like, you know, Nick Cannon, who I sort of dismiss sometimes as like a kind of a fool, a lightweight, yeah, is his own. He's a major brand unto himself. He is an immensely popular person. Yeah. So you know, he had a lot on the line for this. So. Again, always apologize. Uh, more information coming on my new company. Please let me know if you have any <laughs> crisis PR issues. Spoiler alert. My advice will be to apologize because it works. It just did. We watched it. Yeah. In real yep. time. Yeah. It works every time. All right. Finally, this week, Tucker Carlson. All right. Tell uh, you after... culture edition, culture edition. Yeah, no, a lot going on. So. Uh, Blake Neff, the top writer for Tucker Carlson's Fox News show, resigned after posting racist, homophobic, and sexist comments on an online message board. But not anti-Semitic, so he missed it. No, he he missed he, he missed the it's like the egot. He, he could have that last he one. Have the egot, yeah. Yeah, no. Carlson addressed the issue on his show in the Tucker Carlsoniest way possible. So not only did Tucker apologize in any way, shape, or form, he made it sound like this wasn't a recent occurrence, which it was. He never described the comments as being racist. He said it is, quote, wrong to attack people for qualities they cannot control, end quote. I have no idea what that means. Yeah, seriously. What and he oddly are? referred to Neff as, quote, a writer on this show called Blake Neff, you know, downplaying his role. He was his top writer. And mm -hmm. just for kicks, you know, somehow Carlson managed to be outraged 
by all of this and attacking the, quote, ghouls now beating their chest in triumph at the destruction of a young man, end quote. Should we have expected anything different from Tucker Carlson? No. No. Yeah. Blake Neff is obviously a good friend of his. He's somebody who he's credited in his in at least one book that he wrote for being an important element of the success of the show. Um, and I don't watch the show consistently, but I do catch the show occasionally. And Tucker Carlson is being boycotted uh, by advertisers for a reason because he's uh, spewing a lot of, uh, first of all, misinformation which is consistent with what goes on on Fox News during this pandemic, but also um, bad, just, I would say, bad values and distortions. So I have to say that I, I really, this this felt to me like a kick in the stomach when I read this, when I read what Blake Neff was writing anonymously on, this, on these posts, because it just, it was the, the most unsophisticated, base, pathetic, you know, the N-word stalking an Asian woman um, for who didn't apparently didn't want to date him. So there's a lot of talk about him being sort of like a classic incel, celibate person who's angry at women who don't want to be with him. I don't know if any of that is the case, but the idea that somebody who harbors these really, I call them degenerate views is writing a primetime news show is so disgusting <laughs> that um, it really does make me look at Tucker Carlson slightly differently as much as I hear and understand just the the garden variety criticism of Tucker Carlson on a daily basis. And he didn't apologize. Fox News came forward and said that they absolutely do not tolerate anything. Yeah, the network was very apologetic. They were, they were very adamant and very emphatic. And Tucker was nothing of the kind and said, but I'm going on vacation. So, but now, now what we should do is talk about Tucker Carlson running for president because I saw a, a piece about that wandering around on the oh internet this week. That so, I hadn't heard. Uh, why not? It's twenty. Well, in, in the possible. future, yeah, he's a young guy, and he uh, is is a household name, and and in many cases, that is what is required to become viable politically. And I think this this whole situation to me ties back a little bit to this idea of cancel culture that we were talking about. Absolutely, which is to say that people who are against cancel culture don't necessarily think there shouldn't be consequences for actions. Right. This, this is the time when consequences are uh, completely necessary. justified and necessary. Right. Mm -hmm. So th there's just nuance there. Right. All right. Every week we like to conclude this first segment with a little something we call wax on wax off, which gives our founder and editor in chief Sharon Waxman, the opportunity to speak out about something she is particularly into Indeed. this week, her wax mm -hmm. on and something that she is particularly riled up about her wax off. Sharon, the floor is yours. Thank you. So as we all know, the coronavirus pandemic has spiked and made everybody even more miserable than we were because we thought we were on the cusp of reopening. And right now, I think all of us in California in particular are just on tender hooks, hoping that the, that the governor doesn't make us go back into our houses, but it feels like we're teetering there. But I was 
happy to see that somebody finally used a little bit of common sense and allowed restaurants to move their tables outside into the actual street uh, so that restaurants can survive by uh, serving customers outside since indoor dining has now been reclosed. So it, it is something that really I would have wanted to have seen in Los Angeles since I moved here 20 years ago, because I moved here from Europe where that's a normal thing. In the summertime, people take you know public spaces and they move tables outside. And there's, it, it, it also lends lots of sense of conviviality and people being out and about and community. Um, so at least where I live in Santa Monica, and I understand other parts of the city too, they've put out some like concrete blocks to sort of keep it safe from traffic. And they've given uh, a lane over to restaurants so they can put tables outside. So that's my wax on. Uh, my wax off is um, HBO wagging my finger at you because you do, you're making me wait every week for another installment of your true crime series, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, about Michelle McNamara, the true crime writer who tragically died at a young age, um, wife of Patton Oswalt, mom of Alice. Uh, the show is really good. It's based on her book. And I really can't wait every week for another installment. Sharon Waxman has no patience? Uh -huh. What? By the way, what? for those of you who don't know, that's so funny. You sound like my mom. Uh, <laughs> and every teacher I ever had. Um, I'll be and gone probably, in the dark. And probably your son, by the way. Could be. Um, is about the Golden State Killer. And just so that for those of you who have not quite captured this idea. The Golden State Killer raped like 50 women in the 1970s, was never caught, and wasn't really pursued that doggedly, except by a couple of investigators who did not have the proper support from their senior man, senior supervisors. And then he went on a killing spree down the coast, Ventura, down to Orange County, into the 80s, and they never caught him until Michelle McNamara decided that she was going to make this her life obsession. And she did. And at the end of June, the Golden State Killer was uh, announced a plea deal. He admitted to a whole bunch of rapes. And well, the rapes were already uh, past the statute of limitation, but the murders, of course, were not. And he's now in jail, and we now know who he is. But I mean, this is one of the biggest mass killers in modern history. So it's uh, it's fascinating how law enforcement just let this guy let it go. Just didn't just just with, with, with so many rapes and murders going on. Who knows? He maybe he'd still be killing people today if he had not been finally identified. And it was DNA evidence that uh, ended up making the difference. Okay, Daniel, yours. Wax on, wax on. Uh, my wax on, uh, you know, we're all just binge watching shows. You're watching uh, that one. Uh, I started Money Heist, which is a Spanish language mm -hmm. show about a bank robbery, which I thought was new, but apparently has been around since 2017. Oh. It is absolutely fantastic. It's one of the best shows I've seen in a long time. On I've Netflix? Watched, it's on Netflix. I think there are about 31 episodes over the course of like four seasons. I've watched about 10. It is A+. plus. I okay. cannot recommend it enough. Uh, I think between now and next week, you know, you should start that. I'll start. I'll be gone in the dark. And we then, could only watch three of I'll be gone in the we'll dark. Be, so yeah. yeah. 
All right. Well, so we'll, this way we'll we'll come back next week. We'll see how we feel. Yeah. Uh, my wax off this week. You know, I am a longtime fan of the Washington professional football team, which you know we're recording this podcast Thursday afternoon, and at some point there's going to be some giant expose. You know, just I don't even know what. Apparently, the team has been involved in some terrible activities, and I don't. The know team or the team owner? The team. We don't know. No one knows. Like it could be staff. It could be coaches. It could be Dan Snyder, which is what. Which is the the subject truly of my wax off, which is if anything good comes of this, hopefully he will finally sell the team. He's just been a terrible owner for a lot of reasons. You the name change being the, one of them. Change the, yeah, it's called bearing the lead. They changed yeah. the name. Well, yeah, no, that's, we're finally doing that. This apparently is going to be a lot more. Um, who knows? I just, it's time for Dan to be gone. Hopefully if there's one good thing that comes from this article, it will be that time to move on. The fans deserve better. <laughs> Go Washington football team. What, whatever, right. whatever your name is. Yeah, I actually got a jersey in the mail yesterday that I'd pre-ordered from like months ago, and now I, I think I have to return it. Oh, a Redskins jersey? Yeah. Well, I keep it as like an artifact. I know. I can't decide if I want to keep Well, I, you don't wear it around. It's it's like watching You a, can put it in a museum. You can donate maybe, it to a museum. Yeah. All right. That concludes this week's Wax On, Wax Off. When we come back, we'll break down the findings from GLAD's Studio Responsibility Index and Sharon's interview with Insecure star Kendrick Sampson. Stay tuned. Kendrick Sampson is an actor you'll recognize from his role as Issa Rae's love interest, Nathan, on Insecure. I didn't just disappear. I found out I'm bipolar. Oh, shit. I know I just told you that I was feeling depressed, but when I went back to Houston, I found out for sure. And uh, honestly, that was a relief. I'm so sorry you went through all that. And then I didn't see it. Nah, I didn't know how to talk about it. I was scared people wouldn't understand or they called me crazy. But... I had to get comfortable with it. But if you live in Los Angeles, you've also lately seen him on the news leading protests against racial injustice. As the founder of Build Power, Samson works at the intersection of grassroots and narrative activism. And we'll talk about what exactly that means. Welcome, Kendrick. Hey, how are you? Thank you. Really good. Really good. Thanks for coming on. I know that you've been so busy and we've been trying to invite you on the podcast, but you've been out in the streets a whole lot. So hopefully now things have calmed down a bit. We can sort of take the measure of what that's been about. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I don't, it's hard to, it's, you know, 2020 is really hard to tell when things are calm or not. Um, Just like headlines every day. I think the media may have moved on a little bit, but, uh, um, you know, a guy just got, uh, actually two, two guys got arrested yesterday at a protest, um, or two days ago, excuse me, at a protest. And, and we just had our Jackie Lacey, um, a massive protest outside Jackie Lacey's office mm-hmm. yesterday. And, um, in the seventh, the, uh, she's running for, she's running for reelection as the, as the DA, right? Yes. Yes. Um, and we're protesting that reelection. Uh, what, and what's the reason for that? There have been 600, over, I believe 610, over 600 uh, um, murders by police 
uh, in LA County under her watch and, and um, maybe one officer prosecuted and not for murder of, uh, of, of uh, a citizen um, from, from what I uh, remember. And, and there's just uh, egregious acts of her covering up these um, uh, cops crimes and, and participating in this oppressive system, you know, uh, in, in essence and accepting money from these unions and um, it's a uh, police union, excuse me. And, mm -hmm which I, you know are not unions they operate like not as organized labor but more like organized crime and you know anytime you represent a militarized force anytime you're asking something it's not really an ask is it it's a threat so um you know we're we're looking for you know improvement we're looking for better we're we're looking for a new normal that does not involve uh police terror uh, and and to reimagine what public safety looks like and have investments defund the police and and move those those uh, resources allocate those resources to um, mental health care uh, schools education jobs homes housing for everyone um, so that is that's that's the focus um, but yeah it's it's you know, it, like I said, it's hard to tell when things are calm or when things are active. It's like an, a very every every minute in twenty twenty is like a is like a dog year for sure. But let's let's back up and talk about how you came to find yourself uh, at the head of these protests in L.A. What happened for you in your own sort of personal? chemistry that after George Floyd was killed and this these protests begin in Minnesota and they're taking and they're getting they're gaining momentum and they're starting to get responses across the country what happened with you that you then stepped forward and then and then how did you step forward yeah so I mean uh for, so for one thing you know I we always Dr. Melina Abdullah who runs Black Lives Matter Los Angeles um, Black Lives Matter Los Angeles was like my first political home, right? And when I got into grassroots work about five years ago, um, and in like 2015, and I've learned from her group-centered leadership, which was the model that Ella Baker championed um, in the civil rights movement. And so there's no real head, right? There's no, um, it, we all have our role and our responsibility and we're all leaders in the space when we're moved uh, to, to work in the liberation process and do the work of liberating the most vulnerable. And, um, and so, you know, I've always since then been like, do, I do as, as much as I can uh, with whatever privilege I could find in my existence uh, to liberate folks, right? And especially black folks and, and indigenous folks, those who are most vulnerable, right? And mm -hmm. trans folks and such. Uh, and so um, I have to seek, like, continue to seek that out. So in this situation where we have COVID-19 disproportionately affecting black folks, and then we have, you know, police brutality on top of that, if, if you remember before George Floyd, there were all of these, these um, videos of people being brutalized in the streets uh, for not wearing masks, uh, being profiled for wearing masks mm -hmm. and and uh, and we were already 
organizing around mental health and making sure that people have the resources that they need um, uh, and canceling rent and, you know, making sure that people had the right uh, relief and People's Budget LA came into play in assessing black and, and black Hollywood, I mean, excuse me, uh, black uh, LA demands um, that were organized by Black Lives Matter Los Angeles to assess what the community needs. And then you have these murders and then you have brutality from uh, LAPD to continue with, you know, we know here that there are George Floyds, there are Breonna Taylors, there are Sandra Blands and such, um, and Waukesha Wilson and Grishario Mack and uh, Kenneth Ross Jr. and Andres Guardado, who was just like two weeks ago uh, murdered by the Compton Sheriff. So um, it wasn't just George Floyd, right? We were already thinking about how can we make public demonstrations, and there were uh, virtual demonstrations every week uh, from from Black Lives Matter Los Angeles um, to the police commission and against Jackie Lacey. And we finally, I called. Um, after George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, I called Melina and I said, I was just like, we we have to get out in the streets. And she was thinking the same thing. It was like, you know, we're, we're afraid of our people um, being disproportionately affected by COVID and getting sick. But at the same time, we just can't uh, afford to die in private and in public. And and so we, we got out, we said, people wear your masks. Um, the first demonstration was on Wednesday, uh, on that Wednesday, I think May 27th, something like that. And, uh, and, you know, outside of the, the hall of justice, the improperly named right. hall of justice yeah. and, and then moved to, uh, the Grove after that and got brutalized by police there. But, um, but we just wanted to make sure that we made a public, uh, statement that, that, um, that this is not okay and that we're going to end it and that this is the end that police everything's being exposed and one of those things is that police are acting this way because the the seed of of policing the genesis of policing the foundation of policing is slave catching and it will always continue that way in the same way that capitalism works in the same way that our health care prioritizes profit over people all of these things are, are being exposed right now and we can't go back to the world that we knew before COVID-19. And so we are working to make sure to ensure that change. To, to well, you've been, this yeah, I mean, you've been front and center. Uh, I know that you had um, rubber bullets shot at you. You had, uh, I don't know if you were injured. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got hit seven times. I've, you know, posted the bloody pics, um, you know, had, uh, I've had to have my skin glued uh, back on uh, uh, on one of these that has created a pretty significant scar. But yeah, I got hit um, seven times with rubber bullets and and countless times with batons, and I got a little little scar here um, from one of them. But have uh, you had the experience of engaging with um, police in a way that's been at all? Uh, productive, like had a conversation. There have been some cities where um, either police chiefs or other people in positions of authority have, co have come out and engaged in conversation. And then a lot of other places we've seen the videos of cops taking batons to peaceful organizers in a way that's just kind of proved the point of the protest to begin with. Yeah. So um, the productive conversations that we're seeing, to be frank, are just bullshit. Like they're, they're, 
there's a concerted effort to <laughs> there's a concerted <laughs> effort to separate their their um their police forces or their specific departments from the broader defund the police movement. We see this with mm-hmm. Chief, Chief Acevedo in Houston, where he's crying and talking about George Floyd, but not right. acknowledging the six people that had just been killed in the six weeks prior to him having that crying moment with protesters by Houston Police Department or the corruption that was, uh, I think Goins or whatever his name is, the police officer in their NARC department that showed that um, even that same department uh, criminalized George Floyd uh, and, and, um, and that there was so much corruption involved with uh, excessive overtime, them saying that they were places that they weren't. They were 25 miles from uh, places where they said that they uh, had a drug, um, uh, found drugs on somebody or whatever. Uh, uh, there's been Houston Chronicle has done an extensive report on on those. So that that is you're, what, you're from Houston, right? That that's that's your hometown. So yeah, you, yeah. You, you feel close to that. Oh yeah, and they just expanded. Sylvester Turner just expanded the police budget there, just like Eric Garcetti was planning to do here. So I don't see uh, those as productive conversations. What I see that as is PR, right? Um, they've had all these police officers and elected officials and city councils and mayors have had, they've known what our communities have needed for a long time, a very long time. There hasn't ever been a history, a point in history where, um, ever, where police represented peace or accountability. They always represented trauma, direct lineage to slave catching. Um, there hasn't ever been a point where they did not represent trauma. And, and our elected officials have known for a long time that we need healthcare infrastructure, that we need, um, we need uh, uh, nurses and counselors in our schools, community care workers, that we need housing for everyone. Doesn't that go, that goes to the systemic questions well, that we're talking about. This, though. They have, they've chosen to invest right. in uh, an oppressive system over what they know will help the community which also is violent. That choice is violent. Mm -hmm. Let's talk for a second about how you have called on Hollywood as well to change the way it has a relationship with the police and to elevate more uh, Black stories. So I'll just uh, mention that we've had a debate on this program, on this podcast, about how Hollywood treats the police. Uh, on a previous podcast, we had on um, a showrunner of one of the um, uh, cop shows, SWAT, who's the only African American showrunner of these of that kind of serial, and talked about what you know what is the role that police uh, kind of plays and sort of looms as always this sort of heroic figure in general. You've written this letter; I think it was signed by three hundred people. Um, which is hard to get people to agree on something that could potentially undermine an entire genre, a uh, big uh, genre in programming, to change the way Hollywood looks at that. Could you talk a little bit about that and why you think that's important? Yeah, um, we worked with, so Build Power, our nonprofit initiative, worked with Color of Change and uh, several folks, Makai Green, and um, and got advice from people like Issa Rae and Charles King and 
um, and Devon Franklin and, and so many in below the line folks and and uh, and worked with Melina Abdullah of Black Lives Matter and Patrice Cullors of Black Lives Matter um, and Tessa Thompson, who's really dope and has been a, a great partner in this. Um, but talk to directors, everyone on what does safety for black folks look like? And this was a black led um, movement uh, that we're calling Hollywood for Black Lives in solidarity with the movement for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter, lifting up the People's Budget LA and such. And using that as a model to say, what does reimagined pu public safety look like and private safety for us mm. um, look like in Hollywood? And, and, and acknowledging that the choices that we make here even the discrimination that we face within our institutions and the, the discrimination within unions and, and, and lack of uh, support for um, black agents and uh, department heads and such, uh, mm -hmm. no board members being black, that type of thing, how that translates to the effect that we have, the immense pervasive effect that we have on culture and politics and how that direct has a direct uh, uh, effect on black lives because of the anti-black culture in Hollywood and the anti-black narratives that we tell and have told for a very long time and the anti-blackness that's at the core of Hollywood and the way that we operate and do business and capitalism and such, right? Can, can you, well, can you explain when you say the anti-black stories, because I think that, that that would not be familiar to most people, not familiar to me. I absolutely, uh, completely follow what you're saying in terms of having um, a really lack of representation on boards in positions of authority um, and, you know, in leadership in general, people who make the decisions, hold the purse strings. Um, that That is something that has to be worked on. Talk about what you mean when you say anti-Black storylines. So... You can think in a practical way, you know, in direct line, uh, direct alignment with talking about police. You can see the glorification of police and and the and the depiction of police as absolutely necessary and the only form of security, um, which actually in reality they make us less safe, right? And so, especially you know, black folks, um, right. right? And so. Um, you know, that's one way. And then, you know, there's the criminalization and demonization of black folks where you either have, you know, um, we're portrayed as, as my lawyer, John Meggs would say, like you're, we're either portrayed as superhuman or subhuman. We're not allowed the humanity. And if you look at the history of, of what Hollywood is in the same way that you look at the history of policing, um, look at the seed of it, right. And look at, look at how it was formed. Was it formed with black people in mind? No. Was it formed with black subjugation in mind? Yes. Was it formed, you know, the first big blockbuster was what, Birth of a Nation? Mm -hmm. uh, and so black people weren't included in decision making until very recently, if, if, if included, right? We're still right. trying to be included. And I so agree. when we talk about anti-black culture, um, white supremacy in a very practical way looks like white people having influence over all of our narratives, all of our narratives, whether it's green lighting the story, choosing which stories need to be told. They have all these black stories that people are bringing to them and they're like, no, I want this one. That is part of white supremacy. Um, not having autonomy over our own stories, not being able to like getting notes from executives, you know, having every step of the way, some sort of white influence. That is part of white supremacy. So that and, and white supremacy is a is direct anti-blackness, right? Would you put insecure in that category too? 
which is I would I would say that insecure has to deal with whiteness um insecure and shows like random acts of flyness have become have broken through because they had to right because a, a a um our institutions of Hollywood were forced to reckon with the fact that they had no black show. So if you remember, Oscar So White came through, right? And mm-hmm. and shamed um, Hollywood uh, on how we celebrate black um, and, and uplift our black creatives. And then because the film industry moves quite a bit slower, uh, networks were like, Emmys are coming up, we ain't getting the same shit, right? So they were mm-hmm. like, let's get our black shows lined up and i i believe fx stepped forward got atlanta hbo got mm-hmm. um uh insecure and um there's a comedy show too a black ladies comedy show no 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 uh that year i think it was oh was that came a year later i think you're right um uh shy the shy was on showtime yeah the shy and, yeah and uh and we got lena waith we got isa we got uh um uh donald glover right and and that was the work of Black Lives Matter. That was the work of, you know, inspiring, you know, us to be mm-hmm. bold and, and call out Oscar So White and have this hashtag movement and then moving to, to pressure on studios to acknowledge us. Um, and, and, you know, that gave those creatives some autonomy, but not, I, I, I have to say, and they might disagree because they have the inside scoop on how their process was, right? And I believe HBO has been a, a fantastic partner from what I've understood. Mm-hmm. But um, having real autonomy over, because the way white supremacy works is even when we're in the room by ourselves, white people don't have to think about, oh, what are white people gonna say, right? We have to think about once we are finally given the opportunity to, to tell our stories, we have to think about, oh, man, well, we want to say this, but are white people going to accept that? You know, are these are the corporate uh, are our corporate bosses going to going to let us tell this story this way? And so mm-hmm. sometimes um, because of white supremacy, um, we have to check ourselves and, and it hurts you know, to to uh, mute or 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 um, mitigate what our own authenticity is, right? Um, so, what is what is the solution? What is the solution for that? You, there is a BET. There's a black-owned and run network, although it's part of Viacom. Uh, there's okay, yeah, point taken. But you know, we 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 do have to live in the real world, and so the question and, and, and we have to live in a world where we um allow allyship to exist because it, it does feel like white people speaking as one single white person who would like to see the change and i know there are so many people who would want to see this moment used to drive real change what what to you is the solution there i think when we think of the real world um in the way that it is now uh, is the real world is we operate in white supremacy. So the first thing that we have to change is white supremacy. We have to dismantle white supremacy. And those who call themselves allies have to uh, participate in that change actively and, mm-hmm. and be actively anti-racist. There are, black, there are white folks that are going to have to cede power to people that are vulnerable, that are most vulnerable, so that we can have 
uh, say in our autonomy over our stories? Where are our indigenous uh, board members? Where are our black board members, right? Um, and, There's one who just joined the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, uh, I know right. from uh, an indigenous back, I mean, and, that, and that's that's huge. And we need more, right? You know, mm -hmm. and, and we need to center the leadership of the most vulnerable. We need to make sure that trans folks, especially trans black women uh, who are being murdered disproportionately, we have to acknowledge as Hollywood our participation in that, right? We have to, in, in perpetuating stereotypes that justify violence against uh, vulnerable folks. And then we have to work to change the way that we do business. We have to change this capitalistic system. We have to make sure that we are um, reimagining public safety, starting with the police, getting police off of our sets, right? Get them off of our sets. Reimagine what security is. What right? do you mean by get them off the sets? Meaning as advisors on cop shows? Is that what you're referring advisors to? Advisors on cop shows. Okay. Like we've we've been investing in advisors on cop shows, police without any uh, advisors from the community, right? Mm -hmm. And any advisors that actually work on the other side of police brutality and police violence and murder. Um, and in protecting our communities from that and dealing with the aftermath and helping these families. So, you know, uh, and I think that that's changing, but uh, I think that when I'm talking about police off of our sets, I'm talking about securing our sets. They don't add security, especially after this time when black people have been so traumatized. If you really wanna honor black creators, black crew on our sets, then find private security, right? Um, mm -hmm. And, 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 you know, that is something when we're reimagining what that security looks like. We also have to think about, you know, our safety meetings, right? Uh, you know, it's not just about if a camera falls on you or if a ladder falls on you or if you get electrocuted. It's also about making Black people actually safe, uh, getting rid of anti-Blackness, applying anti-racism training, applying trans, uh, uh, fights against transphobia. Um, if you really want us to be included and safe, uh, then we have to change the way that we think about safety in our daily business and lives and creative process. And change is there, the is there anyone is there anyone from the Hollywood community who's engaged with you in that conversation about saying not having police on sets that you're talking about really changing very long established practices, probably decades of. Um, relationships and just, you know, entrenched ways of doing things. And there's so many cop shows too. Have you, so has anyone reached back to you to say, let's engage in that conversation? Absolutely. Yeah. There's been a lot of folks. I, I don't want to name them just because I haven't gotten their permission, but, and okay. I don't want to thwart our progress, but, um, but, you know, uh, if you look at the people that signed our letter alone, right, you have, uh, you know, yeah, dope. Like James Lopez, Devon Franklin, you have, um, uh, you know, Issa Rae and Queen Latifah and uh, mm -hmm. the whole macro team, Charles King and Poppy and Stacey. Um, and, and you have like some really incredible folks that are already dedicated to that change. Right. Um, that are black. Mm -hmm. uh, and and then we have a lot of other folks that um, call themselves allies or accomplices in this movement that are helping us organize that are non-black that are you know white and Asian and uh, Latinx and um, and and Arab and 
Palestinian and Muslim, like there's so many dope folks that are coming to the table and saying, how do we stand in solidarity with the movement for black lives and what you're doing in Hollywood? Um, and yeah, a lot of white folks have, have come to the table. Um, let, I'm asking about in the power structure, because really yeah, that's what you're addressing, right? You're talking about the power structure. Less from studios, less from studios. And more um, from networks? Though we have had some, we've had some from networks. Um, mm -hmm. uh, we've had some from, we've had some from studios, not many, <laughs> not, not many at all. We've had a lot of production companies. Um, and decision makers at those production companies, um, and um, and and I I like the conversations that we're having, right? I'm looking for the concrete moves, but I like the conversations that we're starting. Um, what would be what would be one concrete move? Let's say let's just take CBS, which which yesterday, um, you know, expelled Nick Cannon from their from their network because of comments that Nick Cannon made. So. Let's just take the lane that you're working in. What would you look for from, say, Viacom CBS? It would be a really strong statement if they said that we're not going to use police on our sets anymore because of the trauma that Black people have experienced, right? Uh, at this, they have time. a lot of police shows. Yeah, a lot. And 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 just for for a strong statement um, would be we're going to use private security instead of police on our sets. Um, that to stand in solidarity with the movement for Black Lives and what Black Lives Matter are doing. If you really want to hashtag that and say you stand with the movement, this is what the movement is asking for and has been asking for for a long time. So stand with those who like the the school districts. Um, I believe in Oakland and Minneapolis and Denver who have said they're not going to use any police anymore. The you know L.A. school district has defunded the police by 35% because of students deserve um, and Black Lives Matter Youth Vanguard. Um, you have many different places. Uh, Minneapolis is dismantling their police department. Uh, That's right. Seattle has defunded by 50%. So, you know, stand with these institutions and universities that are, are, are divesting from police and divest from police in Hollywood. That would be this, a, a huge strong statement move, uh, moving forward and not the end. Because then you also have to talk about what you're doing internally to support your black uh, creatives, talents, and execs and crew, um, and and challenge. But for you, that would be that's the first step, like ahead of naming. And I'm not saying instead of, but I'm saying in terms of priorities, because you cannot do everything at once. For you, removing police officers from sets is the concrete move, the first one that you would ask people to take. Yeah, I think that's that's our number one demand. Um, and it does not stand alone uh, in order to move. It, it leads to the other demands. Right. So in order to remove police from set, you have to reimagine safety mm -hmm. um, because we for some reason, in the same way that we can't that we support prisons and such by um, because we can't. Uh, separate in our minds punishment from accountability, which are two mutually exclusive concepts. Right. Um, we can't a lot of the time uh, separate safety from police and they are completely different and do not equal each other. Actually, police make us less safe. So and many studies have confirmed that a lot of people are more open to that idea. And so um, when you reimagine safety, that also leads to investing in. It can't just be divesting from. It has to be investing in. 
um, with one hand you pull and the other hand you, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and you have to, we, then we look at black vendors and having, making sure that, um, and black security and, and, and we have to make sure that we're looking at, um, you know, moving, I'll, I'll say this, we have to make sure that we're moving away from diversity and inclusion or past diversity inclusion into liberation. So we have to create a culture, which is what Build Power was founded to do, was perpetuate liberation culture, to transform the culture of Hollywood from oppression to liberation culture, so mm-hmm. that we have checks and balances, hire as many Black people as possible, hire as many uh, people of color at all levels in all departments um, as possible, and change the ideology that we have have and the culture that we have so that it's not just a social justice consultant or HR that is responsible with dealing with um, problematic uh, culture and anti-Blackness or transphobia or whatever, but that we actually have a culture of checks and balances all throughout our our institutions. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. I think it would be really interesting just to end on on your point about the police to have you in a conversation with a showrunner of SWAT who we had on before, I believe his name, um, I'm, I'm going to remember his name in a moment if somebody wants to help me out, but um, Aaron, uh, his name is Aaron, uh, I'm going to remember his last name uh, and get it wrong probably, but he's Aaron Rasan something. Yeah. Um, and he's an he is he Thomas Aaron Rasan Thomas. He's extremely articulate. Also, and, and grew up and became a showrunner on a cop show, not necessarily intentionally, but experienced uh, racism growing up, and yet is choosing to this genre for his to tell to tell stories as a as a creative. I think it would be a very interesting um, yin and yang for the two of you to have a conversation since you really equate police with a lack of safety. And that is something that certainly uh, rubs against all of our conventional notions. But I think that's exactly your point. So um, I, I, I really appreciate your coming on and sharing this because I, I, I feel like I'm learning a lot. Just every everything that you say is like a very different perspective. Um, and it's really what we need to hear. Like I've seen all the photos of you out there shouting, you know, Black Lives Matter, and we all understand that, but this is really getting into the nitty gritty of how we do affect change. Yeah. So. Yeah, this is how we we prove Black Lives Matter instead of just saying it, you know. Um, and and there are, I mean, there are countless studies uh, to back up all my all my perspectives uh, and claims, and and countless liberators who've been fighting for this for a long time, and I credit them, you know, with with my knowledge and. And my work, mostly black women, you know, uh, and 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 a lot of queer black women, and um, you know, want to celebrate them and make sure that we honor that move these movements at this time, and we all become a part of the liberation process and change the way that we're doing things. That we change the culture that we're living in by seeking out the most vulnerable in every situation that we enter, and seeking to whatever privilege that we have to utilize that to liberate folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how we make sure that we prove Black Lives Matter. And I have to say, and I'll end it with this, um, you know, that that if we're not honoring what the Combahee River Collective taught us of intersectional, look at reaching down to the intersection of all of those layers of oppression and seeking to liberate that person. And so trans, uh, those who are differently able, whatever, you have all these layers of oppression. You reach down to even if it's one person. 
you seek to liberate that person, then inevitably you have to dismantle all other layers of oppression. So you can't just focus on economic. You can't just focus on it. It is intersectional. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if you're just looking at black men to liberate black men, if you're just looking at black women, um, then you're not doing it right. You have to. That's what we mean when we say all black lives matter. Right. When we chant that. Um, and so that is a really important thing to, to uh, talk about in the framework of abolition that we um, that we champion abolition and reparations. Right. Um, is we're we're all we're not free until all of us are free. If one of us is in bondage, um, all of us are in bondage. All of our liberation is linked together. And as Asada Shakur says, it is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. With us love and support one another. We have nothing to lose but our chains. Hmm. Beautiful. Kendrick Sampson, thank you for joining us on the wrap up. And we'll be watching your activism with great interest. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Don't forget to check out Rap Pro, a members-only offering from The Rap and an essential news source for the entertainment business. Rap Pro was designed specifically for Hollywood insiders who want to stay on top of the business of movies, TV, and streaming, and includes exclusive access news and insights that are not available anywhere else. For more information and to subscribe to Rap Pro now, visit therap.com slash join. So good news. According to GLAAD's latest studio responsibility index, Hollywood films are more inclusive of LGBTQ characters than they've ever been. Bad news. There's still a lot of work to be done, and the organization has graded all eight of the major Hollywood studios insufficient or worse when it comes to representation of LGBTQ characters on screen. Here to discuss is Megan Townsend, Director of Entertainment Research and Analysis at GLAAD. Thanks for joining us, Megan. Thank you for having me. So, all right, let's start. What are some of the high points? What are the, some of the things that Hollywood can look at positively about what they're doing at the moment? For sure. Like you said, this is the highest percentage that, uh, that we've found in a single year of LGBTQ inclusive films since we started uh, tracking in this report. This is our eighth edition of the report. Uh, and we did have some uh, some outstanding LGBTQ movies from the major studios this year. Uh, Booksmart, Rocket Man, both of those are also um, own bombshell. All of those are nominated for the GLAD Media Awards, uh, which we're doing our first virtual uh, edition of on um, on July 30th. Uh, and also, we uh, within our report, you know, we we do a report on inclusion in television as well. And one of the kind of differences that we've noticed uh, is that on the TV side, we've had much more of a kind of um, sustained uh, upwards progress every year. Whereas on film, it's been um, it's been much more kind of inconsistent from year to year, where it's uh, the numbers that we're seeing and the stories that we're seeing are kind of changing. Uh, in a much more significant way. Um, and so uh, to kind of address that, two years ago, uh, our president, Sarah Kate Ellis, made a, uh, a challenge in the report for uh, the studios that the major studio distributors that we're tracking to ensure that 20% of their uh, annual slates included LGBTQ characters. Uh, by 2021. And we actually have four studios that hit that number uh, this year, which were uh, 
Paramount, Lionsgate, Disney, and um, United Artists releasing. So those were some of the more uh, positive finds. Um, that said, there's a lot of kind of context that we have to put around some of those numbers to really sort of say, uh, you know, the reality of, of what we're seeing right now. So when you say the context, um, one of the things I find really interesting about this is what you guys call the Vito Russo test. Can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about what that is and how that sort of, you know, separates to me, like what we'll call like token characters from like actual real fleshed out characters in, in movies? Yeah, absolutely. When, uh, when we created the Studio Responsibility Index uh, back in 2013, we put out our first edition, we... We knew that we needed some kind of uh, some kind of, of test or or metric to really look at uh, not just the the kind of raw numbers of, of characters, but also the stories and the impact and uh, what were what were they doing on screen and and were they making a difference? So we created the Vito Russo test, um, inspired by the Bechdel test, as a kind of standard that, uh, that we want more um, films to hit and surpass. So it's really a first step, it's not a finish line, uh, but for a film to pass the Vito Russo test, it has to do three things. Uh, so to pass, the film has to include um, a character who is identifiably LGBTQ on screen in the film itself. Uh, the character has to be not solely uh, or predominantly defined by either their sexual orientation or by their gender identity. Uh, they have to have the same kind of unique characteristics that set them apart as straight and cisgender characters do. And uh, lastly, for a film to pass, the, um, the LGBTQ character has to be tied into the plot in such a way that if you were to take them out, that the, um, that the film would be impacted in a significant way. It wouldn't move through to the conclusion in the same way. And so what are you seeing in terms of um, how many studios are actually passing this test? Is that, is, is there, are they doing better in that regard? Yes, yeah, so we, uh, out of the eight studios that we uh, were tracking this year, uh, we found 118 total releases uh, across them. 22 of them included LGBTQ characters. Uh, and out of that 22, uh, 16 of them um, passed the Vito Russo test. So that's 73% of the um, inclusive films. That said, that's also only 14% of all um, films from those studios, because obviously something that didn't include an LGBTQ character at all automatically um, doesn't pass the test. Can we talk for a second, uh, Megan, about why this is so important? Why GLAD e even does this study? Why are we tracking it? What difference does it make in our culture if there are more prominent and uh, human beings who are LGBTQ? Does it, does it move the needle in any way, do you think? In yeah, real absolutely. life, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we have done, um, in addition to kind of our own anecdotal thing, right, every... Um, I think every LGBTQ person has that, uh, that character, um, whether it be in a, a show or a movie or a book that, um, that was sort of like it for them that they saw and were just like, oh yes, that's me. I understand it. I see myself. Now I know right. myself better. Right. Um, but there's also been just so many studies and, and surveys that really, um, hone in on, uh, 
trying to explain and, and make that clear for people. Um, so for example, we uh, as GLAD actually put out a, um, a survey that we partnered with uh, uh, Procter & Gamble on last month. Uh, and out of that, we found that um, across every identity that we looked at, um, gay and lesbian, uh, bisexual, transgender, non-binary, uh, non-LGBTQ people who had seen some piece of LGBTQ media um, in the three months before they were surveyed um, showed a much higher, um, double digits higher uh, percentage of, um, of acceptance towards every single one of those identities versus people who had not seen something in the past three months. Uh, and, you know, there's just reams and reams of, of those, um, those surveys that get at that. Uh, but it's also just at the end of the day, it's inclusion is reflecting reality. Um, we know that LGBTQ people are a significant audience and, um, and we're passionate and we're powerful. And, um, you know, what GLAD has found through our annual accelerating acceptance survey that we do with, uh, with the Harris poll was that, um, uh, 20 percent of Americans 18 to 34 identify as LGBTQ right so that's one in five people and we've seen that um, substantiated with other uh, with other surveys across demographics uh, so there's the gen forward survey that comes out of um, the University of Chicago that found that 22 uh, percent of Latinx Millennials are LGBTQ and uh, there's another survey, um, the social survey, the general social survey that comes out of another division at the University of Chicago that uh, recently found that actually young black uh, bisexual women are one of the uh, most quickly growing um, uh, segments of the community. And that 23% of, of black women 18 to 34 in the US identify as bisexual, but they're so underrepresented that a lot of people don't know that or don't even know that uh, bisexual people make up the majority of the LGBTQ community. Um, so we have all of this kind of data around uh, how big of a community we are, around uh, our power at the box office, around uh, why, um, why our stories matter and, and how they impact not only us, but um, our friends and, and our families who, uh, who are, are learning and are seeing examples of, of who we can be and how they can help us. Um, and that's really, at the end of the day, why GLAD exists. We were founded um, by you know, a team of, of activists who recognized that the media is our you know, single most impactful and wide reaching tool mm -hmm. uh, to be able to create change by reaching people in their home on a very personal level um, and and connecting to them through narrative and, and through storytelling, which is really, you know, storytelling is, is kind of the basis of, of our society. Yeah. It's how we learn, it's how we make friends, it's how we connect. Um, and so if you're going to leave an entire group of people out of that, that's gonna be an issue. Among the low points that you went through when you were going through your findings, are there one or two that really jumped out at you that that need correcting more, you know, urgently than some of the others? Yeah, I think there were uh, a few kind of key findings that we uh, that we saw in this year's report that we're really 
focused on um, on making sure are being addressed when we are you know working with different studios. Um, so, like we said earlier, one of the uh, this was the highest percentage of inclusive films that we've had in a single year. However, for the second year in a row, uh, more than half of the LGBTQ characters actually had less than three minutes of screen time. Um, and 42% of the LGBTQ characters had less than one minute of screen time. So when you kind of start putting that context around the overall number, you can see that uh, there's still a lot of, of instances where an LGBTQ character may be present, uh, but it's still a very minor character. It might only be, um, in one scene. And even though some of those moments were, were nice moments um, and things like Toy Story 4 and, um, and Wonder Park, they're still very minor. Um, and so, so that's, you know, one thing that, that we're really focusing, focusing in on um, making sure is addressed is, is getting more meaningful um, LGBTQ uh, stories and characters out there. Um, additionally, this was also our second year in a row where we saw a, um, a significant decrease in uh, LGBTQ characters who are also people of color. So, you know, two years ago, uh, we were actually at 57%, so more than half of the LGBTQ characters that we counted were people of color. Uh, and then um, the previous year, we had a, a big drop down to 42%, and this year we dropped again. Uh, down to 34%, which is just 17 of the 50 LGBTQ characters in um, in those major films. And so that's something that we um, really wanted to call out and, and make sure that there's a deliberate focus put on, on changing that. Um, and so that became something that our, um, our president uh, addressed in her letter to the industry uh, that, that begins the report. Um, that in addition to um, to our previous challenge, uh, that we're also calling on the studios um, to to deliberately uh, concentrate and work towards improving that, um, and that they should be working towards um, ensuring that at least fifty percent of LGBTQ characters are also uh, people of color within the next two years. Uh, and then I think the last thing that was um, that. Is kind of a disheartening in finding that we've seen for the past several years um, was that this was the third year in a row uh, that had zero transgender or non-binary characters um, across major studio releases, um, and so that's something that uh, that we also want to make sure is um, is deliberately addressed, especially with uh, you know, the release of the documentary Disclosure um, on Netflix last month, which I very much recommend if, if people haven't seen it yet. Um, but it really, that documentary uh, really kind of shows the past hundred plus years of, um, of representation of trans stories and, and contextualizes the real life impact um, of, those, of those stories. Um, and, and we've seen such a, an amazing Kind of reaction uh, from people to it, so I'm I'm hopeful that it's something that um, now that more people are aware and are paying attention and, and understand the um, the gravity of that, that that's something that uh, we can begin to start getting um, start getting changed in in the next year, two years, three years, um, as more films that are being developed right now will start uh, coming out.
it's super interesting work. There's a lot of um, really important information there. Obviously, we couldn't discuss all of it today. I recommend people to uh, head to glad.org to read the full report, to read as much as you can. And, um, you know, thank you very much, Megan, for joining us to, to discuss it today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this week's episode of The Wrap-Up. Thank you to all our listeners. Remember to please follow us or subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast. Be sure to rate and review us and let us know what you think of the pod. See you next week.